Our scripture reading today comes from Matthew 1, verses 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Please be seated. Well, good morning. I'm Tom, and I have the joy of serving on our teaching team at Christ Community, uh, and uh, wish you a very Merry Christmas. Welcome to those of you who are in person and those of you who are joining our Leeward Campus online. So good morning and welcome. If I were to ask you, what is the most favoritist can I use that language? Christmas movie of all time, what would you say? Now, I have to tell you, I have been known to not have the best taste in movies. Um, so I'm telling you, I'm almost in a tight tie. Um, lest you don't listen to me the rest of the time, uh, it's a toss-up. But I'm going to tilt one way this morning. It's either National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation or the original Home Alone. I'm going to go Home Alone. Anyone with me on that? I love Home Alone. And uh, Macaulay Culkin, who plays this eight-year-old, uh, Kevin McAllister, you know the story, most of you, does a masterful job portraying this very creative and genius kid who is left alone by his family, of course, accidentally, and he faces these uh, bumbling burglars, right, who are uh, tenacious, who are hell-bent on uh, pillaging the house. But as the movie goes on, they are more hell-bent on unleashing revenge on this little eight-year-old boy, who, uh, again, outwits them. You know, it's not hard for me to cheer him on. You know, I just some, somehow, I just, there's something deep in me that I just cheer him on who is so courageous and uh, so tenacious in defending his family home. But there's also another aspect of the movie, if you think with me for a moment, that is actually quite terrifying, isn't it? When you really stop to think about it. And that is, for all of us, the fear of being abandoned or forgotten by those we love. Finding ourselves desperately alone in a very dangerous and uncertain world. Now, the story of Home Alone is fictional fun for sure, but the experience of being alone is anything but fun. 
I remember some of my earliest memories as a young boy, and maybe you can relate to me in your own experience, of getting separated from my mom at a big store. Uh, I can't imagine what my mom felt, but I know what I felt. And it was a frightful feeling I never felt before, of being lost. And being lost, it's not only panicky because you don't know where to go or where you are, but most terrifying is that you feel so desperately alone. This deep sense of aloneness, this aching pain of loneliness, may I suggest is one of the greatest agonies and most haunting fears we ever encounter in life. And if truth be told, Christmas is a time that some of us feel most desperately alone. When Dr. Kirk Thompson was here this fall at Christ Community, this brilliant person and dear apprentice of Jesus made a compelling case from the realms of interpersonal neurobiology that every one of our fears, every one of your fears and mine, at its very core, is a desperate fear of loneliness of being all alone and abandoned in the world. I think he's right. We feel failure, don't we? Because we are afraid we will be rejected by others for our failure. We fear illness because we're afraid it's going to rob us of our relationships. We fear running out of money, for example, because we're afraid no one will be there to help us when we need it. Every fear at its core is a fear of being alone of being home alone in the world. Now, while the Christmas season, again, can be the loneliest of times, ironically, the hopeful message of Christmas confronts our loneliness with a timeless and truthful message. And this is it from our text this morning. Christmas means we are never alone. If you have a Bible, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, which is the first book in the New Testament, chapter 1. Now, as a church family across our campuses, we've been exploring together in this Advent message series several names of God. And the names of God speak to who God is, his character, and what that means for us as apprentices of Jesus in our daily Monday lives. This morning, we are going to look more closely at this brilliant, powerful name, Emmanuel. Emmanuel is like, for Matthew, an early bright star of hope. In the darkening night sky, the name of Emmanuel quickly appears in Matthew's gospel account of the Christmas story. I want you to notice as we enter here that Matthew narrates the Christmas story primarily through Joseph's eyes in what must have been some of the loneliest, if not the loneliest time in Joseph's life. And it is in this moment Flowing from Matthew's brilliant and inspired pen, we find the greatest comfort to our deepest loneliness. Now, let me set the historical and literary context of our text this morning. Matthew's inspired gospel breaks a 400 years of prophetic silence for God's covenant people. Let's stop for a moment and let that sink in. 400 years of God's prophetic silence. That's a long, long time to wait. And God had promised to send his covenant people a Messiah, a deliverer, a savior, a king who would usher in 
an eternal kingdom. Yet generation after generation after generation, they waited and they waited and they waited. God's seeming silence must have only amplified their deep sense of aloneness and abandonment. Troubling questions must have emerged in their inner world, their minds, their hearts. Had God abandoned them? Were they home alone in a dangerous and fearful world? Hovering above the opening verses of Jewish writer Matthew is that reality dangling like the sword of Damocles over chapter 1. In chapter 1, we enter into this time of silence and Matthew has felt, along with 400 years of generational time, the agonizing long wait. The gnawing doubts, the disturbing fears, the deep struggles of God's covenant people. So in the opening verses of chapter 1, Matthew points out the scriptural pedigree of Jesus of Nazareth. He is the one who perfectly fulfills the promises and prophecies captured in the Old Testament. Think of it like this. It is the Messiah's home address. It is that which distinguishes Jesus from all humans in history. It is like for us, our home address allows FedEx or UPS to get us that Christmas package in time, hopefully, at our very doorstep. So you'll notice that Matthew, as he begins his gospel, gives us multi-generational address. And he ushers us through the train of time across the realms of history to the very doorstep of Jesus, the person of Nazareth. Having done that now, he tells us Jesus' birth story. And not surprisingly, they further reinforce Jesus' messianic address. And several times, as you read this text and other texts surrounding it, you will notice that the Gospel of Matthew takes great pains in explicitly telling us how the birth of Jesus fulfills Old Testament scriptures. Okay? So as we come to verse 18 now, Matthew invites us to see Jesus' birth through Joseph's eyes. Look at me at verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, for many of us, we are familiar with the Christmas story, but it's easy to zip over this verse and not really comprehend all the truth that's impregnated here. When we slow down, when we go back 2,000 plus years to a different time and culture and place and walk in Joseph's sandals, we can begin to imagine Joseph's inner lonely world. Matthew tells us, notice the text, that Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Now, betrothal uh, is a deep cultural context. In our context, we have engagement and then marriage. But this is different in the first century. Betrothal had the legal standing of marriage. But very important to understand in the context, the betrothal period had no sexual involvement. It was absolutely forbidden. forbidden. In our 21st Western culture of so much sexual promiscuity and permissiveness, it's hard for us to grasp the personal and social realities that both Joseph and Mary faced. 
Hold that on your heart. This would have been massively scandalous in Nazareth, as well as the nation of Israel. This would alienate Mary and Joseph and their families, from their families in many cases, and their entire community. In fact, Jesus will be called by his enemies later, that bastard child. Social shame that would follow Joseph and Mary would follow them their entire life. Now, Matthew doesn't focus on all this and all what it meant for Mary. The gospel writer Luke does, and I commend you to read the gospel writer Luke to give a bigger picture. But he does focus our attention primarily for his purposes on Joseph's difficult journey. Now, in reading this inspired text, we wonder what went through Joseph's mind and heart, right? When Mary finally looked him in the eye and said to him, Joseph, I am pregnant. In that instant, Joseph's whole world must have crashed in on him. Let me ask you, could there have been a more lonely moment in Joseph's life than the day Mary told him? And I wonder, you know, in my own heart, um, how long Mary waited to tell Joseph and what was that like for her? I can't imagine the fear she must have felt. Day after day, she anticipated telling Joseph and seeing his shocked response. Joseph clearly knew how women got pregnant. He knew he wasn't the father, but who was? This young teenage girl he so deeply loved and cherished and trusted. The young woman who he had dreamed with about a happy future life together. What on earth would he do now? Verse 19, the brilliant writer Matthew lets us look over his shoulder and through his heart and peer into a remarkable young man's devout and virtuous inner world. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quickly. Now again, Matthew says so much here about Joseph's devout faith his impeccable character, his stellar virtue, as Luke will do also about Mary in his gospel. Like Joseph, Mary also has a virtuous heart and a beautiful surrender to God. But Matthew's focus here is to make sure we do not miss Joseph's triple A plus virtuous rating. How do we know this? Well, Joseph is described in your English text as a just man or righteous man. That is, in context, his entire life revolved around and consistently reflected the Torah. His devout Jewish faith framed his world. But Matthew goes out of his way to add something more that he didn't need to. And that is, you'll notice the text that this Joseph was kind, compassionate, and merciful. Joseph knew Mary too must have been feeling deeply alone. <laughs> In the midst of his own perplexity and difficulty, Joseph is thinking of Mary here. Clearly, Joseph has a deep and devoted love for Mary. And Matthew lets us feel the dissonance and palpable tension in this verse. Joseph doesn't want to communicate that he is somehow responsible for the child. 
But he also doesn't want to put Mary in a bad light in the community. Joseph is in a kind of intractable catch-22. And the question emerging from the text is, what should he do? Don Carson, a friend and brilliant New Testament scholar, captures this well. Joseph's lonely reality. Here's what he says. He says, because he was a righteous man, Joseph could not in conscience marry Mary, who is now thought to be unfaithful. And because such a marriage would have been a tacit admission of his own guilt, and also because he was unwilling to expose her to the disgrace of public divorce, Joseph chose a quieter way, permitted by the law or Torah itself. That is what Joseph proposes. It would leave both his righteousness, again, Dr. Carson puts it in perspective, his conformity to Torah, or the law, and his compassion intact. Do you sense the deep struggle Joseph is, has here? He, he's struggling what he should do, and we don't know how long. The text, another context of Luke, seems to suggest that Mary went to see Elizabeth this probably quite a while. It's a good amount of time. Mary's pregnancy, this is my hunch, is probably now beginning to show. And time is running out. Look at me at verses 20 through 23. But as he considered these things, it's a very light idea here. He's in deep thought and torment. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. It is hard for us, isn't it, across the centuries to imagine the impact of this unforgettable moment in Joseph's life, this watershed moment of this dream. This divine messenger is dispatched from the throne of God to this remote outpost in the Roman Empire to this young, devout Jewish man in the dark of the night. Matthew's doing something here I don't want you to miss. He wants us to make a redemptive history connection right here. Joseph, Joseph. Hmm. Like his patriarchal namesake, Joseph in the Old Testament, if you remember, received divine communication from God in dreams. So too, the first century Joseph also has dreams. Do you see that? And in this dream, the angelic messenger is dispatched and declares Mary's pregnancy is the result of a divine conception, a miraculous intervention, a divine initiative and purpose at work here is so massive, so great, something foretold by the prophets of old, something much bigger than Mary and Joseph imagined. Notice here in verse 20. The angelic messenger addresses, and usually not just Joseph by name, but by his messianic pedigree, Joseph, the son of David, or David. Remember Joseph and his genealogical lineage. He is in the line of King David, who has been given this promise in 2 Samuel 7, of the anointed one, Yeshua Mashiach, an eternal king, whose kingdom would one day reign forever. But the angel goes even farther to reassure Joseph. The divine messenger connects Mary's pregnancy with the prophet Isaiah's words, spoken hundreds of years before, a son will be born. His name will be Emmanuel, 
Now, fascinating. So important is this name that Matthew wants everyone who reads this text to not miss its meaning. His readers who do not know Hebrew, he defines God with us. He doesn't want us to miss it. And notice, the angelic messenger gives Joseph the green light to take Mary as as his wife, right? Joseph is pushing back fear and peering through the eyes of faith. I have the hunch that Joseph's heart must have skipped a massive beat. In ways you and I cannot fully grasp, Joseph is drawn deeply into the wonder and mystery of the incarnation. Joseph must have felt the same kind of wonderful worship, the worshipful wonder that Mary had already experienced as she cries out in the Gospel of Luke, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Matthew wants us as he introduces us to the Gospel, his written Gospel, oh, the mystery and wonder of God himself becoming human in order to save his treasured image bearers and a broken creation from the ravages and the disintegration of sin and death. In the name Emmanuel, Joseph is reminded in this perhaps loneliest moment of his life that he is never alone. That in the midst of even the most difficult and humanly unexplainable journey, he never walks Never. And neither do you. And neither do I. I would love for you to hold this truth closely in your hearts this Christmas. And I'd like to suggest two Christmas reminders to tuck in your mind and hearts this Advent season. The first one is this. Emmanuel, remember God is with you no matter what. I don't know where your heart and life is this morning. I don't know the depths of the confusing contours of your difficult circumstances. I don't know the tears you may be shedding in the night. I don't know the storms of doubt you are encountering, the fears sabotaging your joy, or the gnawing deep sense of loneliness you may be experiencing this Advent. But there's one thing I know with the greatest confidence a human being can have. It is a bedrock truth that you can build your life on. It is the truth captured in one word, Emmanuel. You are never alone. Now, I have come to believe, both in my study of the biblical text and in my own experience, and working with the spiritual formation of many, that Satan's most ubiquitous and most effective strategies is one we seldom talk about, one we often forget. I believe the most potent temptation of Satan is to deceive us. That is, to convince us we are all alone. That we are all on our own. That we are home alone in a dangerous world. One of my heroes of faith, one who has shaped so much of the intellectual contours of my faith, is martyred pastor German, German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer. No one brings greater insight than he does in his brilliant book, Temptation. He describes this satanic temptation strategy. Listen to what he says. At this moment of temptation, God is quite unreal to us. And then he says, Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, 
but with forgetfulness of God. Think about that for a moment in your life. Satan's most hellish influence in your life is not aimed primarily at getting you to reject or hate God outright, but rather to get you to forget God's reality and presence with you every day. The greatest peril, perhaps, to your faith and mind may well be to forget God, to live our daily lives as if we are all alone and all on our own, to enter our Monday worlds of work, school, friendships, family life as if God is not with us, to miss out on experiencing the tender and comforting and intimate presence that comes moment by moment in our apprenticeship with Jesus, the greatest lover of our souls. I am convinced that this is why throughout the Holy Scriptures we are exhorted often to not fear and to remember that God is with us. For example, Isaiah 41.10, Isaiah, you hear God's loving heart through the prophet Isaiah, that God is with us no matter what. Do not fear for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. Surely I will uphold you in my righteous right hand. I will hold you. Psalm 23, which we are going to unpack more this next Sunday, we are reminded that the Lord is our shepherd. His attentive presence is always with us, always caring for us, always protecting us, always providing for us, and always guiding us, even in life's darkest and most lonely valleys. God says, I am with you. Jesus, the good shepherd, reminded his disciples shortly before his ascension these words. And don't miss that Matthew opens chapter 1 with God being with us, and he ends his gospel with Jesus saying, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The good news of Christmas is Emmanuel, God is with you. Friends, he is with you in your joys and in your greatest pleasures. He is there. He is with you in your hurts, in your heartaches, in your loneliness, in your questions. He's with you in your doubts and confusions. He's with you in every fear and every failure. You are never alone. The one who gets you completely is always with you. The word that became flashed with robes of sinless humanity were threaded meticulously with every emotion and feeling you will ever face. I love the Hillsong song, Never Walk Alone. Here's some of the lyrics. It's so blessed my heart. Your heart is for me. Your ear is listening. I'm safe in your love. Your army of angels watch over me. You're always present. You're always with me for all my life. Your favor has followed. You are my covering. I have never walked Emmanuel is with you no matter what. And to remember that, can I encourage you to do something? Perhaps to write the name Emmanuel, or you will see it daily this coming year. Maybe put it on your bathroom mirror to remind you in the morning as you start your day with God that God is with you no matter what. Maybe put Emmanuel in your school notebook or your Monday cubicle or workspace or on that computer screen you open up reminding you that you are never alone. 
The second reminder flowing out of Emmanuel that I want you for this Christmas and the year ahead is remember God is for you in every way. God being with us means God is for us. The very heart of the divine messenger's announcement to Joseph found in verse 21 bears this out. She says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. The gospel writer Matthew wants us to see that this child to be named Jesus, which in Hebrew is Yeshua, which means God saves. God saves. The good news of Christmas is a saving message. That God took on human flesh, he walked in the sin-darkened world, was wounded for us by laying down his sinless life on a bloodied Roman cross as an atoning sacrifice for your sin and mine. He rose from the dead, gloriously defeating death. And he declares the good news that God is for you in every way. The Apostle Paul, whose life was transformed in meeting the risen Yeshua, risen Jesus, Emmanuel, on that dusty road to Damascus, writes these words of logical implications of this truth, of Jesus' incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. Romans 8. Listen to how Paul makes this logical connection. Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, that's Jesus, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? With overwhelming hopeless, hopeless, or hopefulness of heart, Paul speaks of God's incomprehensible love for each of us. That God sent his only son into the world for us means definitively there is nothing within his holy character and sovereign plan God would not do for you or me. How do we know we are never home alone in the world? How do we know that God is with us no matter what? That God is for us in every way? We know it because of Emmanuel. We look to Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior, the one whose life, death, and resurrection declare that God is with us. And we look to the deep and intimate communion of the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, who resides in us, and will never leave us. We are never, never alone. So let me ask you this morning, have you in repentance and faith trusted Jesus, Emmanuel, as your personal Lord and Savior? If you have, you can be assured that you will never be alone now or for all eternity. If you have not yet embraced Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, will you do that today? There's nothing you can do to earn it. It's a grace gift. So in repentance and faith, reach out to him. He's there for you in quiet prayer this morning. One of Winston Churchill's most famous speeches, y'all, was a commencement speech at his childhood school. Prime Minister Churchill's speech is remembered for his emphatic repetition of one phrase. Churchill looked at his audience and said these words, never give in, never give in. Never, 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 in nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in.
Churchill's words are truly inspiring and needed in our time. But there's something even more important for our time and for you and me. Something more important to hold closely in our hearts and minds in these challenging times, in this hopeful Advent season. More than anything, my dear brothers and sisters, in Jesus Emmanuel, remember, remember, you are never alone. You are never alone. Never, 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 never in anything great or small, large or petty, you are never alone because Christmas means you are never alone. Let's pray. Thank you, Emmanuel, God with us. Gracious Lord, there are many things in our world and in our lives that threaten our sense of security and peace and cause us fear. Times of loss and circumstances, local, global, national, that cause us to fear or feel alone. May we hear the good word of Christmas, that you are with us. May we understand in new ways the great truths that are the bedrock of our faith. Christ has come. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. In Jesus' name, Emmanuel. Amen.